Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com, the show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Fran Stans. I'd like to wish a big mazel tov to the founder and owner of JewishCoffeehouse.com, Rabbi Scott Kahn and his wife on the marriage of their oldest child. This week, I am planning to release a shorter episode later in the week, so stay tuned for that. And as always, I love hearing from you. I love getting referrals from you. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Gavura Davis, a Rebbitzin, maven in so many different incredible fields. And today, the topic of our episode, I would say, is a little bit more on the controversial side. However, let's see where this goes. I grew up in a Kirov environment in Moscow, Russia. Gavura reminds me a lot and her household or family of what my family was like growing up. Tons of food being cooked on Fridays and meals with just so many people, and you probably don't know how many people will show up sometimes. The reason I wanted to have this conversation is because there was always this dynamic of Bali Chuva and people who chose to become observant as their lifestyle. There was this transition part into mainstream communities for those who did move away later to Israel or American communities. And I felt there was that dynamic where it was harder for them to integrate. And I didn't hear anyone talk about it. And I didn't know so much about how things are handled after. And is it successful? I know there is a rate of some people who return or reverse back to their old lifestyles. So we're not judging here. I just like to talk about the existence of these dynamics and that we have so many people, and Gabor told me on our pre-call, that most from Jews today are either Bali Chuva or children of Bali Chuva. And Gerim. So let's just reframe a little bit when we think about from people. They're not all just from from birth and where everything was spoon fed and given to them since they were born. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Gura. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And I already have about 40 things that I want to say about your one minute intro. I just want to start out by saying, first of all, what I really admire about your show is that it is willing. It's sad to me that this would be a controversial subject, because I think when you say controversial, what you really mean is potentially painful things that we don't say out loud. And I think that as a person who has struggled, like all people, in many different areas of my life, and I got married and had kids before the internet boom, where people were taking to the internet streets with their struggles. And I think that one thing that compounds pain and challenge is feeling so isolated and alone in our pain and in our challenge. So the reason that I'm willing to speak about a lot of different subjects that might be perceived as taboo or controversial is because I want to sort of name it and give voice to the challenge. And I think in that space, we can then start working on creative and communal, I don't want to say solutions, because I'm not insinuating there's a big problem, but how we can move through the challenges of life as a community, and with support, and that people should not ever, ever, ever feel that they are alone in their struggles. Because something that I have seen in my professional life is that 
if you're struggling with something, chances are there's a whole community of people struggling with the same thing. And when we talk about it, when we bring it out in the open, we can be creative in our support for one another and help each other. One, understand you shouldn't feel the shame of feeling alone or that there's something, God forbid, wrong with you because you find any area of life challenging. So I think that that's important. And two, another, so I have like a few disclaimers that I was thinking about in my 30 second drive over here. And one of them is that I want to talk about my own unique experience and that of the experiences of people that I have spoken to a lot over the years, but also recognizing that there's no monolith of humanity, that all FFB, you know, from, from birth people feel this way, or all Bali Chuba feel this way, or all Rebbitsons feel this way, because one of the major challenges of life, and this is, by the way, why marriage is often challenging, is that every single person is a unique individual. And I come from my unique nature, my nurture, my life circumstances, my environment, and you come from your unique nature and life circumstances. And everybody comes from their unique place. That being said, I think that there are similar struggles and commonalities in this journey of adopting a lifestyle that we were not raised in. And that comes with a whole set of challenges, as well as an entire, just so much beauty. It's so wonderful to hop into something, to join in, to, to know that the lifestyle you're living is with a conscious choice, that I'm living a life that I chose, that I'm building for myself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your upbringing. I know you love bringing this in, that you were a cheerleader in high school and with the name Gavura, yeah. it's sort of screaming, I chose this name for myself. I'll tell you the story about my name in a second because people ask me that a lot. But okay, so I grew up secular, secular, secular. I'm sure there's some people that were more secular than I am, but this is the part that thankfully my kids aren't so online and probably their friends aren't so online. And even the fact that I have to say, hopefully people don't hear this is another question we can discuss later. But I grew up in deep in the Bible belt in Georgia, not even in Atlanta, in Marietta, Georgia, and I'll never stop saying y'all. And I grew up in a culture where because of various challenges at home, I spent a lot of time with friends and I would sleep over at my friend's house every weekend, mostly I just, cause I was very social and I went to church most Sundays, many Sundays with friends and Easter, Xmas, communion, the whole thing. So interestingly, I liked it there. I said it, I liked it. Jews are not supposed to go to churches. So please don't on your spiritual journey, say the Revitan told me that church is awesome. So trying it out. But as a child, I grew up with a very secular Jewish worldview, a very reformed Jewish worldview, and not all secular or reformed Jews have the same worldview. But the message that I got was that we weren't that concerned with spirituality. We didn't talk about God in synagogue. And uh, by the way, I got kicked out of Hebrew school in fourth grade for talking too much, which will not be a surprise for those of you that know me. I always say I got revenge when I started my own Hebrew school. And I really dropped out of Hebrew school in fourth grade because I thought Judaism was boring and irrelevant. And why would I learn a language, Hebrew, that 6 million Jews in Israel spoke when I could learn Chinese that a billion people spoke? Now, I did not drop out of Hebrew school and learn Chinese, but like Hebrew school for me was Jew jail. And also I was cool in public school. So why didn't I need to hang out with dorky Jews on the weekends? That was my view of Hebrew school. But in the time that I was there, 
I was not getting much God messaging at all. It was cultural. There were prayers taught, but it wasn't about building or developing an intimate relationship with God. So when I went to Eastside Baptist Church and the minister stood up and said, God loves you and you and you and you, and even you, it's me. I was like, God loves me. There's a creator of the universe and he wants a relationship with me. This is awesome. And I kind of was spiritual. I always say I was spiritual in that every time the clock said 1111 or 222, I was making a wish, which was really a prayer because that's what wishes are before you add God into the picture. So I was a spiritual kid and two Jewish experiences had a profound impact on me. One was anti-Semitism because growing up in the Bible Belt, I was told that I was going to hell like a lot. And I remember when my grandmother died, I was in fifth grade. I didn't know her well, but I knew she was like a good person. And the thought of thinking about her having eternal damnation and a fire and brimstone because she didn't believe in JC, that to me was not a loving God. So I wasn't an observant Christian or anything like that, God forbid, thankfully. But I did like the idea of a spiritual connection. And so being told constantly that I was going to hell because I didn't believe, didn't sit. And so I knew that Christianity was not for me. But I did have just because I think it's important to understand the journey of people who don't grow up with a Jewish connection to God, that when you have challenges in your life, there's nowhere to turn spiritually. And that can be very painful. So I had an experience. My mom had a lot of illnesses when I was a kid. She had MS since before I was born. She had an AVM rupture in her brain when I was six and had very serious brain surgery. And I found myself when she had cancer again, when I was in eighth grade and feeling like her life was on the line and thinking I need to, someone gave me Harold Kushner's book, why bad things happen to good people. And I've since learned that he's backtracked and rescinded his philosophy about that. But the basic answer is that there in that book that I was given, I was given actually audio tapes was that God has no control in the world, that God created nature and then took a step back. And that to me was a very unfulfilling and mystifying approach. And so I remember thinking, maybe I should pray to JC because Pascal's wager, right? On the one hand, the majority of the world, at least in Georgia, my world, says, if you don't believe in JC, eternal damnation. And the Jews are saying, it doesn't really matter what you believe. There is no afterlife. So if you are waging your bets... There's nothing to lose over here. And over there, they're saying you go to hell forever. So I remember like being on my hands and knees, praying for my mom and praying to JC because that was the only modality that I knew. Then I went to Jewish summer camp and I loved that. I was like that kid who couldn't get enough of the services and everybody else like hated going to services. I loved it because I like singing by the water and just feeling that what I perceived as a spiritual connection. And then when I got to college, Professor Deborah Lipstadt, who most of you probably know, who's the world expert on Holocaust denial, she, if you haven't studied her work, she's actually just appointed by Biden, a special cabinet on anti-Semitism position, hasn't been confirmed yet because of all the shenanigans in Congress right now. But anyways, she, her trial, she was sued by David Irving, a famous Holocaust denier in London. And it was a very big deal. My dad convinced me to take her course. She was a professor at Emory University where I was in college. And at the time, I mean, I know it's hard to believe now that I was like a cool girl. I have pictures I can show you privately one day. But I'm saying I was like the kind of, you probably watched like 
movies growing up about American high school, like parties and college parties. And that was my life. I was the first one on top of the bar dancing. And I took her Holocaust studies course begrudgingly because I saw Schindler's List. Why did I need to take a whole course on the Holocaust? And it really had a profound impact on me because I started thinking a little bit more existentially. Is there really a God? How could God have allowed the Holocaust to happen? Those people, my people, all died for being Jewish. What does it mean to live like a Jew if so many people die for being Jewish? And I had like a moment of consciousness, not a moment, really a semester, a time period. And I switched courses to study at Hebrew University in Jerusalem instead of creative writing in South Africa. And I loved Israel. I fell in love with Israel. I loved religious people. I loved being around religious people. I thought that they were so kind and so loving and so caring. As a kid, when we were going through all this, we weren't part of a community and we really didn't have anyone. I guess my friends were my community, which is why I was drawn to them. I loved from people, but I also loved religious philosophy, that there's a creator of the world, that life has meaning and purpose, and that there's a guidebook to life. Because one thing that I thought so much about when I studied the Holocaust in depth was that history, if you study world history, basically the study of war and manipulation and abuse of power. And I thought to myself, wow, people really historically, and even now, if you look at everything going on in the world, people are not getting life. People are not in general living. Some people are, of course, and there's beautiful people everywhere. And I don't think that Judaism has the exclusive path to enlightenment or to be a better person, but I Jewish philosophy, a path towards enlightenment and a moral compass and a blueprint of how we're an actual instruction book of how we're supposed to live our lives made a lot of sense to me. And so I really came to, to Judaism for a few reasons, but both communal and ideological and spiritual and religious. And so I graduated college early, moved to Israel, married a rabbi, thank God, thank God, had five kids pretty close together. And then living, being a Baal is a crazy thing because I went, I mean, life is crazy, being a person is crazy, but my experience was from going from the sorority scene to living in Harnof, which most of you probably know is a very religious neighborhood in a very short period of time and finding myself in the park with this name that like screams Balchuba. But I've never been embarrassed to be Balchuba. I've never been someone who feels that I need to assimilate or hide or not share my background. I'm very proud of my background. I have amazing, amazing parents. And the people, the non-Jews who helped take care of me as a kid were amazing people. And my secular Jewish friends are amazing people. I don't think being a Balchuba is something to be embarrassed or ashamed of or something to try to not share. I had interesting experiences, like, sorry, I'm talking too much. One quick little thing about living in Harnof that I think being a Balchuva, I examined each Torah concept with a lot of thoughtfulness because it was something that I was choosing, something that I hadn't grown up to with. So like when it came to hair covering, for me, I didn't want to wear a shade, but it didn't hushkafically make sense to me. I knew halakhically it wasn't a problem, but hushkafically it didn't make sense. And so I wore a tichel 
everybody in Harnok used to say, Gavora, you should switch your name. You should, you should wear a shaitzel. You look so balchubish. I'm never going to get your kids in school. And it was hard for me being in the park, being so different. And then I moved to Kansas. So after five years, we decided we felt so blessed and so fortunate to have learned Judaism as adults and really believing that there is a huge need for Jewish education and outreach in America. So we moved to Kansas City to start a kollel where we were one of a handful of observant Jews. I got a shakel and I was one of the few people even covering my hair in the city. And so I just think over the years, it's been interesting coming from an environment where I'm unique or one of a few or having been raised or observing life differently than the pervasive culture around me. But one thing that I have learned is that people are the same in our hearts and we all want the same things in life to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be successful, to live a life of peace and health. And so I think that we all have more alike than different. Now I've been working in outreach for 15 and a half years. Well, you have an incredible story. Every person who has their own spiritual journey from non-Jewish Orthodox observance to Jewish Orthodox observance definitely has a unique journey. So let's talk about this whole dynamic. You were in the in the community. Harnof, you can't get more than that. I don't know, maybe Lakewood you can or Kira Safer you can. But doing that, realizing that you don't want to have to conform, which is an integral value in a lot of closed-knit communities. It's a big value to not stand out and to not be different or, you know, create shenanigans. You want to follow the path and do what's expected of you. And and that's what Hashem wants, or that's what your parents want. Either way, let's talk about how that is essentially the opposite trajectory of somebody who took their whole life upside down, rejected in a way their family potentially, to live this lifestyle. And now it's not necessarily a Jewish value to be like everyone else and look like everyone else. I know for some people, it's a big struggle and they don't want to stay in in town communities. So they move to more out of town communities. And some go into Kirov like you and others stay and struggle. I think it's definitely a dynamic because as you mentioned, sort of by nature, by definition, a bald shuva, someone who is, goes completely rogue, like my friends freaked out when I became religious. I wasn't eating the meat in the cafeteria. I wasn't going to parties on Friday night or Saturday. And I had like, my friends had a whole cult intervention session with our resident hall director because they were worried that I lost my mind in becoming like a religious fundamentalist. So that took tremendous strength and sort of belief in myself, in my own intellect to say, no, I'm not crazy. I mean, I'm a little bit crazy, but adopting this lifestyle isn't insane, I think. So I had to trust myself. And to some degree, going totally cross current of society, dressing modestly, like I wear tights on Masada when it's 95 degrees and I'm leading trips of people who think it's insane to then, as you mentioned, sort of, I don't know if it's a real Torah value, but certainly a major element of cultural religious community is, well, I don't know that it's conformity. I think it's sticking to rules and boundaries. And then when it's gray, like is something a halacha? Is it like, I wouldn't necessarily say that 
being unique is something that is always valued in the religious community, but it's challenging for Balichuva because the very thing that the strength that brought us over and get, and I am very lucky and I'm very blessed and fortunate. My husband is too, that our parents were very supportive of our growth and our journey, but for many Balichuva, for most Balichuva, it's overcoming tremendous obstacles in every direction. Like, parents worried about you, grandparents, siblings, friends, and then you're joining a community that you want to embrace you. I mean, one major Mila, one advantage, one beautiful thing of the community is community, but that comes with challenges because there are certain expectations to, I guess, conform is the only word that I can think of. I want to be careful with my words. If being unique is a value or not, is that a Jewish value? Is that a human value? I think we pretend like it is. You want to make Torah your own. You want to make the Shalachmanos your own. But then when it comes to actual things, it's this is what you got to do. And these are your only choices. And yeah, you could choose between blue and red, but that's it. So for me, I think it's what's halacha. Like those are our gadarim. Those are our boundaries. I just think culture became its own religion in a way. It, yeah, I, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about, and you mentioned this a little bit before, Put on your shaytel, or you want to get your kids into schools, into camps. Shaduchim, you haven't entered that parsha yet, but I know it's coming. Talk to me about what that's like for someone who's balachuba. Well, and again, this is just my own personal lived experience. And you, you see other people. I do. There's a lot of fear. Fear is something that I have observed as a cultural reality in the religious community. I mean, everybody has fear. It's not just a religious fear, but our, our fear is unique. Will my kid get into seminary? Will they? Shaduchim is a very different way of meeting someone than, than in the secular world. And so much of it has to do with family and reputation and the ability to be perceived as normal. Or unless your kids are like totally out there and don't care about that. This has been very challenging for me because I don't know, I'm like maybe not the most nor I don't know. Like I, I have a unique personality. My husband is a black hat rabbi who runs marathons. Um, a Rebbitson who crosses the finish line at marathons. Try to run as much as I can. I love hot yoga. I like being myself. There are some things that I just could never fully conform to because I don't think that I have to or that that it's a halacha. Another issue on this is yichus. You know, this isn't something that we've discussed, but in the from world, people talk about who your family is, where you come from. And we have, thank God, a booming Kal Yisrael with tremendous growth. And we don't necessarily have the same numbers of institutions like camps and yeshivas and seminaries to keep up with that growth. So the byproduct of that is that competitive to get into things. So the reason I mentioned God and fear is because I am a person who by nature is more anxious about some things more than others. So I think anytime I think to myself, let's say my kids want to be mainstream and date into like a normal family or a rabbinic family or a yichistic family, whatever, let's say that that's what they want. Well, they're not going to want us because my kids, all four of their grandparents are phenomenal humans, but they're not observant. And I know that this is a question that comes up over and over again. And I have had to help people 
the reference. I mean, I was terrified when my son applied for yeshiva for the first time. And when we were naming our kids, Benjamin, my husband was like, they're either Ben or Bat Gavura. So we better give them like somewhat normative names so that they at least have that going for them. But I get shit up calls about various people. And sometimes they'll mention the names of the kids, like a girl's name that's perceived as a drop more modern. So the person from a reference, they'll say to me, well, what's with the family? Why would they name their daughter? Whatever. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh gosh, how are my kids ever going to live up to this standard? However, clearly something like Shaduchem, Hashem has everyone in mind. And I have to remind myself constantly that Baruch Hashem, 40 days before my child was conceived, that same call that said who would be with who also applies to my kids. So I tell my kids, you're going to marry into families that like and value us. And if they don't, and your grandparents, God willing, they should be healthy and well for 120. And if someone doesn't want to date my, someone's family doesn't, isn't interested in our family because of our games, because we work in Kiru, because we didn't grow up religious, then they're probably not the right person for my kid anyways. Now that doesn't mean that it's easy as a kid. Also living out of town is challenging. I had an experience, like me and my husband, we don't know people. Like we work with non-observant people. That's thank God. And who we love and respect and admire, but that's who we spend all of our time with. So we don't have the connections or the family or the cousins or the sister-in-laws that unfortunately really help with things like camp and seminary and shaduchim and yeshiva. And I really think it's just, first of all, we need to change the culture the degree that we're able to. But I've been pleasantly surprised how much people say that each kid will be judged on their own merit. I have a son in Mary Estelle in Baltimore, which is a great school. Some, I mean, I think very competitive and hard to get into. And he got in on his own merit. I had a daughter who didn't get into a camp that we applied for this year. And I was devastated because it brought out all my insecurities. Because for people, see, most of your listeners are from, so you don't know from this. But in the secular world, that's crazy. Unless your kid is like a terrorist, to not get into a camp that you apply for on time is literally on Private schools like Upper East Side and all these things, you sign your kids up for school when you're pregnant. So I didn't know that it was like that. And like a friend of mine said to me recently, why did you think your daughter would get into camp whatever? And I was like, what do you mean? Because this daughter stays up and says 30 minutes at Tehillim on her own, unsolicited every single night. Like, this is an amazing girl. Why would any camp not want her? And so my friends who are more in the know than me, more at the feet of me, said to me, oh, Gabora, you're so cute. Don't you have to apply for three camps and then take Tehillim every night that they get into one? <laughs> not Tehillim Lishma. Tehillim to get into camp. Well, it is Lishma. That's a Lishma reason because my poor daughter wants to go to camp. And I think it brought out a lot of insecurities for me. And then also, so leading into maybe something we can discuss is why people leave the community. This feeling of it has happened to me that I have thought to myself, I gave up so, I don't want to say I gave up because I gained a lot, but the journey here has been really challenging. Thank God. Like all amazing journeys, they are fraught with challenges. And so sometimes you think to yourself, I worked so hard, like this daughter, I've inspired her to wear tights every day and it's still not good enough. That's the horror though, because when I asked around, a lot of people didn't get into this camp. It had, And then I thought, oh, like my default to go to was 
oh, they heard something about our family. Like I'm sure her references, because you have to send in references, would only say nice things, but it could be one of them accidentally said, the family's more modern, but the girl's a great girl. So in my mind, I'm thinking that must be what it was. Someone knows that one of the girls in our family wears a red coat. And when I spoke to the people who actually worked at the camp, they were laughing. They were like, as if they would even do that much referencing. The reason your daughter didn't get in is because there were not spots. And they have to accept people who have had older sisters there. And if you look at the entire staff, how many kids they have, how many nieces they have, how many sister-in-laws they have, just for like a some regular girl from Philadelphia without any in, they just didn't have a spot for her. And I had to work through my stuff. Interestingly, my daughter was just more upset about the camp, but her go-to was not. She's, I think, a lot more confident in her Yiddish fight than I am. Oh, she is FFB. <laughs> my husband said that there's a different category, BT of FFB, no, FFB, BT. Yeah. She's the child of a Balchuva. So she's just upset. We found another camp and God willing, it's going to be fine. But with seminaries, they definitely say, and I feel your pain and I'm so sorry. And I know my sister-in-law from Baltimore, their school tells them you have to apply to a minimum of three seminaries. So because you're not in Lakewood and you're not in whatever, and I'm sure in Lakewood, they're also applying to three seminaries. Yeah, it's funny because I don't think of Baltimore is so out of town, but I guess relatively speaking, it is. But I would think the more in town you are, the more competition you have from your school. That is true. And I have heard lately that there's a whole group of guys who Dafka want to date out of town girls. So there's our advantage. (laughs) But really, there's no such thing as advantages because it's all from her. Let's talk about the reasons people do become from because I witnessed so many different Bali Chuva and there was definitely a trend or there is this attraction. This is not at all everyone at all, but there's this pull when when somebody's in a crisis in their life or things are really difficult they they need help and spiritual help is a natural way to seek support and there's this hope that if they become from their problems will go away or they will suddenly have this beautiful family in Chavez and as if orthodox people have no problems so Let's let's take this away. Don't do that. Listen to this podcast and then you'll know there are no problems. We air it all out. Um, Okay. We're educating. That it's a great question. And I think that I get very defensive when people insinuate that I became religious because of pain or because of crises that I have been through. Because people, that sort of feels like it's condescending that like, oh, for me, I needed a crutch. So in order to get me through life, I needed, I needed this, right? She, she grew up with challenges. So she, she needed that. Well, think of it as people who are Orthodox and need certain kinds of support. Like Bikur Holem has incredible resources. You don't have to change who you are to access those support networks. So I'm not saying it's a ganai. Support outside of, of Yiddishkeit. So I think that a lot of I have observed a few different reasons that people become religious. Some of them are healthy and stick, and some of which I, in my opinion, are not healthy and often we see don't stick. So reasons not to become religious. My journey also started with a cute boy, to tell you the truth. Like, come to shul with me and it's, oh, okay, I'll come to shul. Reasons not to become religious are because of charismatic leaders selling you promises of come step on over to the other side of, you know, the rainbow and your life of 
majestic, no problems, we'll sail off into the sunset. This is not a reason to become religious because as, and as we all know, there's no escaping work of life, which means built into the system of mankind is struggle. Be alive is to struggle. This is a fundamental Jewish concept and a fundamental reality that we ourselves experience. So I think that a lot of people, and there's a lot of indictments about the cure of world in this way, that we curate the experience for people, that we only, like, we don't show the messy houses, although if you come to my house, I'm very messy. So I feel very good about being transparent in that way. You know, that cure of professionals intentionally, when they're trying to make people, are presenting a show. A show. <laughs> a show. And I think it's, having been on both sides, it's difficult because if I were to show you like the reality show, no one would come or no one would come back. So it's, we're balancing trying to present an authentic beauty of Yiddishkeit and what, you know, Rav Noah, there's different schools of philosophy in the Kira world. Rav Noah Weinberg, who started Asia Torah, and I work for Asia Philadelphia, he was very into 48 ways of wisdom. Share with people that Judaism has wisdom to offer. It's not about people. Or meaning the religious community is beautiful, but you shouldn't become religious because you have a charismatic leader who's a salesperson. The Torah doesn't need salespeople. I very much see myself as an educator, not persuasive. I'm not trying to score points. I'm not trying to keep tabs. I totally object when people like, well, casually and FFB people say this. Well, a lot of people say that. How many people have you made from? And my answer is always zero. I don't make, I, I can barely make myself do anything. How it's funny when people accuse me of being a cult guy. A lot of parents have accused me of being a cult leader over the years. And I'm like, that's so funny because I can't get anyone to do anything that I say. I can't even get myself to do anything that I say. So I don't think that, I don't think it happens to be that a lot of outreach professionals are outgoing because you kind of have to be like to walk up to people on campus. Are you Jewish? Are you interested? It's tough to put yourself out there. It's funny because often non-observant Jews, I think have a real fear that observant Jews are judging them. And I experienced sort of the opposite. Like I'm in a place where I'm the only, often, most of the time, most of my day, I'm the only observant person in big spaces. And I'm worried, like, if they see my kid struggling, are they going to then say, because it happens all the time that I'm the only religious Jew that people know. So they make presumptions about religious Jews. It's now I just have a yelling problem and it has nothing to do with being observant or not observant or whatever thing that I'm self-conscious about. I don't have that much of a yelling problem, but a little bit when I'm stressed. <laughs> so this is like, do you invite people over Arab Shabbos when they see the Mad Dash and Mad Rush? Or do you just invite people for Shabbos when everything's calm and beautiful and the cleaning lady's already left? But also most people don't just have strangers in their homes in the most stressful times. Like, nope. Totally. Of course. Once a year on Thanksgiving. So I very much believe in an authentic approach to outreach, which is that the Torah is the inheritance of every single Jew. And I see myself as an estate attorney that found out that someone deserves and has coming to them a tremendous treasure, right? So let's say someone dies 
and they have beneficiaries who don't know about it. So obviously the estate attorney has an obligation to find that person and to say, this is entitled to you. You can choose to take it or leave it. When it comes to money, most people are not going to leave it. But I feel that the Torah has tremendous, and this is, this is a positive reason to, I believe, share Torah with people. Because as you said, in an insane world, everybody needs a spiritual backbone and connection and to know that they are part of something bigger. They are, there is a God who created them with intention, that their life has purpose and meaning. And not just for weak people, for everybody. It's a massive life upgrade when you know that you're part of something, when you know that God loves you no matter what, that all of your struggles have a purpose and a reason behind them. And I think that raising children without God, as many people are without a spiritual connection, is really, I don't want to say criminal because there's no malicious intent, but it's depriving them of a basic need. And we know on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, after food, shelter, clothing, safety, comes existential connection. So I feel that it's incumbent upon us. Hero isn't a cute thing. It's not a profession because you're done with Colel and you have nothing else, no other professional track to take. It's an imperative on every single Jew. As the Chavetz Chaim said, right? The first mitzvah is to love Hashem. And part of loving Hashem is loving all of his creatures. And part of loving all of his creatures is helping them understand that God loves them. So I feel that it's incumbent upon us. It's a constant mitzvah. It's a constant obligation that every single Jew has to help share that treasure with other people. There's a lot in care of industry, and I know especially with college campuses, but people come and do this for a couple of years, they move on. And the people who they made from, quote unquote, because you don't make anyone from, they sort of lose that connection and suddenly they're hefker thrown into the firm world that they adopted this lifestyle. They believe in it. It's actually improving their life, but then they don't have that mentorship and they don't have anyone helping them transition into real life when you're dealing with somebody has to tell you to apply to three seminaries and three schools and this is what you need to do so you have this on your shit of resume. This is what you do so you meet people. It, it feels a little bit like they're thrown to the wolves and what do you have to say? To and that? by the way, those are just the easiest things. Like someone could have told me that in one second and it would have saved me a lot of heartache. There's real stuff. What's the real stuff? The things that people don't talk about that when you become religious, you need an extra $250,000 a year to pay for Jewish day school, kosher food, to fill in yeshiva week, which has become a necessity of from living and like on every single message board that I message board one of my the 90s every single group that I'm in people are talking about the rising cost of housing in an a roof no one talks to you about these things in the door on the way in necessarily I do so if you know me if that's my style to be honest and real if things come up but there are real issues I think that being observant it brings a lot of beauty to someone's life but there's a lot of complications like birth control like having a rhythm and calendar of intimate life. And if you grew up not with that, it's very difficult. There's holidays, making holidays, Shabbos, feeling like everybody goes away for Pesach and just stop with 6,000 rules. There's so many real challenges that in general are challenges for the whole from world. But when you're talking about Bali Chuva, it's for some reason, there's the exit door in sight is always a temptation. Because 
and maybe that discussion is for another time. Why more from people don't leave the fold? Maybe they do. I don't know. That's another discussion. But for Bali Chuba, that, that door is always there. And so I think that adds this extra sort of dynamic, which we know. I don't know statistics or numbers, but my unempirical anecdotal experience is that a lot of Bali Chuba do leave or have a flirtation with religious life. And then in the end, it's not for them. Or their children can't handle the extreme. Yeah. Statistically, I think that they do say that Bali Chuba have a harder time raising from children. And then just other challenges, like my kids know Hebrew. My, I, I didn't learn Hebrew growing up and I'm not very good with languages. So I can't do homework with my kids after a certain grade. And there are a whole lot of challenges that come with being an immigrant. So an immigrant to this culture, and, and it does always feel like you are an immigrant to some degree in my experience. So getting back to your question, I, I think to some degree, it's a dollars and cents question, unfortunately. So I work in fundraising a little bit and I, my husband and I fund our, our outreach efforts. And it seems like people do want to support. There's a lot of organizations that support outreach because they believe in that mission, rightfully so. I think when it comes to the next transition of, but I mean, this is through Karovim in general, there isn't enough professional services. And now that I'm on the other side, it's like, I wish people, I mean, I'm sure people do understand that I'm just one person and my phone literally, like nobody in my family can be around my phone because, and my husband's phone, because it's just next, 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 next. And there is sort of a lifelong commitment to my students, especially people who blame us for bringing them or hopefully are grateful to us for opening the door for them. Now that they're in the room, who's there to help them? And I think that there are not as many funded positions and the communal leaders, like in every arena, are just stretched very, very, very thin. And it's not because we have all the answers. I do not like the superiority rabbinic model of us up here. And we know more about life than anyone, but it's not true. We're humans. We have access to Torah wisdom. But I started like a fund for therapy for people. And it goes almost all to Bali Chuba because they, it's a difficult transition. Also like being part of large families when you weren't raised in that. And it could be, it's just as hard for someone who was raised in one, but that's just, this is the population that I work with. So there is a taina out there. There is a complaint out there that people feel dropped by their care of professionals. And I know most of the outreach professionals in America, and they are by and large, some of the most incredible humans that I know. And I think that they're trying their hardest. They have something that like, I, as an adult called all the people who reached out to me and had me over for Shabbos all the time and like Shabbat Brachas for me. And I'm like, you made it look so easy. I don't think I ever properly had the cars that's hope of the time that you put into me. No one was paying you to. And you, even if they were, you, it, it's not a job. Kirov is not a job. It doesn't pay well. And it's, it's a lifestyle. It, it's, a, it's a sacrifice and it's a choice. It's a commitment because we really believe in what we do. But the demand for our time is just way greater than the amount of time that we have. And so then we, I mean, especially myself as a Balchuba, but I think all humans have to be aware of our own boundaries. And for a lot of time of my professional life, 
I think I committed too much time outside of the family because I never wanted to say no. I never wanted to not be there for people. But at the end of the day, I have to turn my phone off. Like I'm teaching one of my sons how to drive now. And everyone in my family is like, well, mommy can't bring her phone with her because it's just nonstop. So I think that I understand the Taina because I felt it. I felt that so much in my growth and in my journey. Like, where is my support? Where are the people who, who brought me in? And as an adult, I've worked through a lot of that, realizing that we have to create whatever reality we want. And like my motto in life has always been, and this is just me, but like, if you feel a need, you're not alone and build a community, build support, be the support for that someone wants. And so I always say to people, I, I hate being that person who says, keep trying me. Eventually I will call you back or come for Shabbos because when I'm with you, I'm with you, but it's just very hard to keep up. And I think ideally we would transition people to mentors in their community, but I, I feel like so many people don't have time for other people. And then you have like the whole Shabbos thing that I say, okay, we'll just come for Shabbos. And then I'll give you my time and attention. And now I have a whole shul, a whole community of current peeps. And then I have my own kids and then I have myself and my desire to read. So I think that there are a lot of complaints against us. And I guess what I would say is I'm not justifying that there aren't better systems there for people. But we need to work on it. We need to improve it. And that cure professionals, we're just people who are trying our hardest to pack everything that needs to be into one day and also sleep and also take care of our own health. I mean, I was very overweight for a large part of my adult life and I'm taking full responsibility for it. I really, truly am. But a person only has a certain amount of mental energy and capacity and we can't as much as, and I do think this is a challenge that a lot of from women have, as much as we try to create and expand and just grow and grow and grow time management and emotionally, everything does come at the sacrifice of something else. So I think that it's a legitimate reality that we have to address. I think that it starts with people becoming religious for the right reasons. I think like, let's say like with marriage. So a lot of people I know came from divorced homes or dysfunctional marriages. And of course we believe in divorce and Judaism, but wanting something else for themselves. And then they meet cure professionals who appear to have the thing that they wanted, right? Like a secure marriage, healthy family. And so they think, well, if I join the from world, I'm more likely to have that. And I think then when it, when their reality doesn't match up necessarily with what they were hoping, that's where that exit door comes from. Well, I was sold a bill of goods. It, where did, it didn't do me any good. So I'm out. When it comes to something like marriage, I do believe that the Torah way philosophically is, this is my soulmate when you stand under the chuppah. And so marriage is challenging inherently for so many different reasons. I'm sure you've had many podcasts to talk about that. If you want to have another one, I'm open to it. But knowing that this is my soulmate and that we are on a spiritual mission together, I think is a tool in helping build a healthy marriage, but you have to do the work. 
And you go into it each with our own stuff and each person has their own things and things. Like Torah isn't your prize golden ticket to the chocolate factory. It's your guide. Now go work. Exactly. And I'm a big therapy. I think I've mentioned that like five times. I'm a big therapy advocate um, because I think it helps. I want to thank you so much, Gura. I think you said so many important things today. I really think I have to re-listen so I could just take more because a lot of it did bring up a lot of stuff that I grew up around with and I have opinions and thoughts about it. And I want to just leave everyone with one idea. I see posts all the time, Erev Yentif, Pesach, Purim. Make sure you're inviting the singles or the Bali Chuva around to your Suda or to your Seder and make sure to include them. And even when I do see it and I try to do my part in, in being a community member, very often and many people who are overwhelmed with their expensive Orthodox lifestyles and their overwhelming days off from school where you can't work, so you have kids, thinking about other people and inviting them can just be like the last thing on their list. So what I would like to leave off with, and in general, Torah, here's your workbook, now start working. Same thing, if you are in a position where you know Pesach or Perm's coming up, and this is going to be a really hard time because everyone seems to be going to some Pesach hotels or invited to their parents or in-laws, and you're just on your own. Reach out to three, four people, send out texts. Hi, do you are you staying in town? Do you by any chance have? It might be super uncomfortable, but that was what we were told as seminary girls when we landed in Israel. You are going to have to text people and call people and make sure you have a place to go every Shabbos or else you're going to be on your own or we'll feed you, but you'll be on your own in seminary. So putting the responsibility again on the people who do need the help and support and more love and more attention, we can't just expect, it's nice to expect, but if if we're just going to be disappointed, lonely, and, and, and resentful of Jewish people, then I would like to encourage you and give you permission to ask for what you need and look for and ask enough people because someone will say yes. And I guess the onus is on us to create a community where people feel comfortable asking that people should know that there are people who want to help the degree that we can. And it's not Nebuch. It's not superior, inferior dynamic. It's we all have different challenges. So if you can reach out to people and help them, even if they can't come, I think just know that someone sees them, someone, because we all just want to be seen. As you said, also like giving jobs to people like there and you can't do everything yourself as the communal leader, telling them, you know what, you need to start a group and we need to get like 10 people in the group and you're going to all share the responsibility of putting people up for Pesach Starim or this is your job. This is your project now. Let's do something about it, but you're going to do this. You see the need, create the resource around it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening until the end, Fran Stands. Make sure to check out the other podcasts on jewishcoffeehouse.com once you're here. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And please leave a review on this show wherever you listen to your podcast. And of course, we appreciate when you tell your friends. And of course, if you didn't know, I am a success podcast coach and I help people launch their podcasts. So keep me in mind for when you or your friends are thinking of launching their podcast. See you later this week, and I hope you have a beautiful day.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.